welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Defining value in healthcare has been a difficult problem for some time, given value is a perceived concept that impacts how patients approach healthcare. With drug therapy costs rising, it becomes even more imperative for healthcare to improve the value of care. Today, our guest will review the concepts of value and present two methods to define quality while showing how quality and value are linked and how value can be maximized by using a model that considers clinical, humanistic, and economic outcomes. Let's listen in as Dr. Scott Sepchi tackles this challenge. Um, today, we want to talk about the relationship between value and quality and how we can interlink these two together to begin to show the value of drug therapy. Uh, and to do that, we want to define quantity and show how quality measures can impact healthcare in the coming years, and then demonstrate how, as organizations, we can use these quality measures to improve the overall value of care. Um, it, it's pretty well known that healthcare expenditures are going up fairly dramatically. And it's now projected that by 2030, we will surpass $6 trillion and be close, uh, closer to $7 trillion, or nearly 20% of the gross domestic product in the United States will be dedicated to healthcare. In my world, this is very evident in cancer because in 2000, between 2000 and, and 2004, the median monthly cost of a new cancer drug surpassed the monthly household income of a, of a family in the United States. And that, that, that gap has just continued to grow such that now we have drugs that cost on average $150,000 to $200,000 a year. Um, there, is, there are a couple of drugs that are half a million dollars a year. And we have two new gene therapies that are $3.5 million for one dose. So as you can understand, the cost of drugs is tremendous. The question is always, why does healthcare cost so much? Well, there's actually an interesting study, a couple of studies that have been done looking at this process. Um, the first was looking at what are some of the factors that it caused to the increase in spending. Uh, it was thought maybe it was the population that we're increasing in size and increasing in aging population. Uh, perhaps it's changes in the disease states. Is there an increase in prevalence or incidence of costly diseases? Is it more services being utilized? Are we just asking for healthcare more, or is it the price of that care? So this study looked at uh, healthcare costs between 1996 and 2013. And what they found was that utilization increased by a modest 2.5%, felt that that was not a significant increase over that time period. Disease prevalence and in, in, uh, incidence actually decreased by 2.4%. The two major drivers of the cost of healthcare was population and the service price. Population accounting for 35% of the growth, um, with uh, the 35% of the increase in cost, with growth being the predominant part, but service price is 50%. Or as the uh, article said, it's the price that's driving the cost of care. 
unfortunately, we're not always seeing the value of this. Again, coming back into my world of cancer, uh, what we're seeing is that there's an increase in price, but the clinical benefit has not always been proven. So a study looking at 53 drugs with, uh, approved between 2003 and 2013, 30% uh, of those drugs showed no improvement in overall survival. And, and remember, in oncology, overall survival is the ultimate gold, the gold standard. 16% um, of those drugs had a undetermined or less than 3%. And only 43% of drugs had an improvement of more than three months. And what's interesting in oncology, and we're starting to see this across a lot of the specialty drugs, is that the pricing of the drug is independent of the novelty of the drug. And there's actually no price difference between 21 agents and the next 30 agents that were approved in the same class. Generally, historically, when the second drug came out, there would be a decrease in cost in the third, et cetera, and we'd start seeing market pressures drive the drug down. That's not happening in oncology. These prices are staying the same, and in fact, are actually increasing over time, such that the current marketing strategy in the US for pricing is what will the market bear? And that's not something that it can, can be sustained over a long period of time. When we start talking about value, we have to talk about what is the definition of value. And value is what would the individual give up to, uh, and, 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 and to get the healthcare? So are you willing to not buy your boat to go get your healthcare? those kind of things. And that's the opportunity cost. That's how the economists look at it. Um, but in healthcare, it's very difficult because the consumer or the patient rarely purchases everything. Uh, generally, the health plans are paying for most of the costs uh, and the patients have a indirect cost. It comes out of a paycheck if you get an employer or through Medicare or Medicaid, and you don't always see the direct cost of care. So interpreting value is always hard for the patient. Uh, if you're one of those people that likes uh, formulas, this is the formula from the Mayo Academy, uh, Quality Academy. The value is equal to quality over cost, and then quality is broken down to outcome, safety, and service. And as you start looking at quality this way, you can start thinking about where pharmacy can fit in with drug therapy, because if we improve outcomes or we improve safety, or we improve the service of care, we're actually increasing the value. And anytime we do that, plus a decrease in cost, we're really improving that value equation. So now you need to ask what is quality? And the definition of quality is, is one of those things that it's, it's, it's like, you know it when you see it, but it's hard to define. Uh, Edward Deming, who is sort of the father of uh, quality improvement has defined it as a predictable, predictable degree of uniformity with the dependability at a low cost. Uh, Professor Donna Bedian, who we're going to talk about in a few minutes, actually described it as maximizing patient welfare. And then the National Academy of Medicine or the old Institute of Medicine uh, defined it as how frequently will health services um, improve or achieve a desired outcome uh, that are consistent with our current knowledge. And Mayo Clinic's definition of quality is the best outcome, safety, and service. This all leads to what we have known to uh, in healthcare as the triple aim or the quadruple aim, depending upon how you wanna look at it. This is improving health, improving the patient experience and reducing the overall cost of care 
while improving the experience for providers. Uh, and this graph really kind of begins to divine that loop where we take professional knowledge, patient values, and together come up with a clinical decision through our care process, then produce an outcome that feeds back on the knowledge and the patient's values with the values and the knowledge, uh, the patient's values and professional knowledge affecting each other. And eventually we come to a point where those outcomes maximize over time, which is symbolized by the growing uh, graph on the outcomes uh, block. I'm gonna ask you a question up front and use the chat feature to see, uh, to answer this. So uh, which of the following is not part of the definition of quality? Okay, we're not seeing too many chats. So I'll just go ahead and give you the answer. Um, it's actually cost. And I'll show you why in a second as we go through. Earlier, we talked about Professor Donabedian. Donabedian is a pathologist from Hungary, and he has written and developed a, a lot of uh, information around quality and the measurement of quality. And he believes that quality can be defined by these concepts, efficacy, effectiveness, efficiency, optimality, acceptability, legitimacy, and equity. When we start looking at these mean, we can say that efficiency is the best care under optimal conditions, usually defined by what we see in a randomized clinical trial. It is that, that top bar that we're setting. Effectiveness is what happens then when we take that and apply it into normal practice environments. Um, and that's why a lot of people are saying comparative effectiveness may be the best way to do this. Uh, efficiency then is taking and getting the greatest outcomes, the best benefits at the lowest cost. How do we take efficacy, effectiveness, and add that cost component to it? Uh, optimality is an economic term. It's that diminishing returns where spending another dollar does not get you a dollar's worth of benefits. When you reach that point, you've reached optimal care. And equity is talking about fair distribution. You got to understand fair and equal don't always mean the same thing. Uh, are people getting fair distributions of healthcare? Uh, acceptability is the patient's preference and legitimacy is society's preference. Um, one of the things that you can see with this is that may be hard to maximize all of this. Uh, what is a societal preference may not actually be what the patient wants, or it may be best to give a generic drug because it's the most efficient, but there's some reason that the patient isn't accepting it through their patient uh, preferences. The National Academy of Medicine has actually uh, defined these six criteria as what they believe is quality. Safe, safety, effectiveness, patient-centered, efficient, timely, and equitable care. And again, this is how we kind of think in pharmacy. Is the drug safe? Is it effective? Are we doing what the patient wants? Are we respectful for their care? Are we doing it in an efficient manner? Are we doing it timely? And are we making it equitable uh, to all patients regardless of who that patient is? And again, we've already talked about this a little bit, but it may not be possible to optimize every measure of uh, care. Uh, it's, it's one of those things where it's, it's just not possible in some instances, in some instances it may be. But I want you to notice that cost was not listed as any of the measures that these organizations are suggesting. It's implied, it is implied in efficiency, it's implied in optimality. Uh, and so there is some implied cost uh, processes 
but it's not defined as one of the cost measures. And what we're seeing now is a change in how systems uh, are processing uh, quality processes. I'm old enough to remember when Joint Commission just came in and inspected for, for structure. Did you have the capacity to deliver the care? Uh, and then it subtly changed into process. Uh, do you have the components and are, are you able to optimize that care and do it in such a way that it's efficient? And now we're moving more into that outcomes world. If you think about systems moving through that process, again, Don, Don Obedian says, when you're reaching a true quality process, you're focused on outcomes. You have the process down, you have the structure to do what you need to do, and your focus is on the quality of care and therefore you begin to improve the value of that care through maximizing outcomes. And so we're seeing outcomes goals transfer as well. Again, I'm the, one of the advantages of being an older pharmacist is I've seen all of this, right? We've seen where pharmacy has gone from, we're just reducing the cost. We're only gonna use the cheapest drugs to, well, maybe that's not the best way to do it. Are we gonna utilize the drugs correctly? Are we gonna use them in the right patient? And then we started looking at that through a disease state lens to say, wait, uh, maybe it's better that we focus on the disease states and use the right drugs for the disease states. And I would argue we're now in that outcomes management process where we are focused on optimizing outcomes and really beginning to look at, are we doing what needs to be done to get to that best outcome? And ultimately we'll start shifting into wellness. Can we do things proactively to prevent the disease from ever occurring. And when it does, can we reach that outcome that promotes wellness and that it is always in that wellness state, which again is the ultimate goal for a society. So what we're seeing is a transition in measuring what was done to a patient to what is, what is being done for a patient. And that measurement then really begins to focus on where we're going. Um, I would argue we're not there yet. We're still at a point where we can track who got what, but when we try to say who got what and it resulted in the best, we're not always able to put that last piece together. And that's the step we still need to make. Uh, Dr. Kuzma from the University of South Carolina actually proposes a model to do this type of measurement. They, call, they propose the ECHO model. And the ECHO model says, that you, you maximize value when you maximize the clinical outcome, the humanistic outcomes, and the economic outcomes. And we're gonna talk about each one of those real quickly. Uh, the clinical outcomes are things that pharmacists are all comfortable with, right? Signs and symptoms, lab values, uh, disability. In my world, it's overall survival, progression-free survival, complete responses. Did we get a partial response? Um, but it is those clinical things that we are comfortable with measuring. We're comfortable with these because most of the times there's usually some hard measurement behind it. There's an A1C value or a potassium level or a methyltrexate level or a number of years the patient has been free from cancer. Those things are things that we can usually measure in a very, very specific way. And it's something we're comfortable at looking at. Then we start moving into the humanistic outcomes. And this is where things have become a little fuzzy and pharmacists sometimes start to get a little, I'm not sure about this area. And this is where you start talking about quality of life. You start talking about functional status. Is the patient physically uh, functional? 
Do they have a mental function? What's their emotional state? And are they socially interacting with patients again or with family again? Uh, and, and it becomes patient reported outcomes. These are a lot of times considered softer. Now, I will tell you in the cancer care world, we are really starting to promote these and we are really looking at patient reported outcomes. And we're finding a lot of times that patient reported outcomes can predict those clinical changes. And then if we're looking and talking to patients up front, we really can get a handle on things up front and head off some of the bad, the, the bad clinical outcomes. It also talks about satisfaction of care. What's the quality of care? You know, is that care convenience? Can patients afford it? The access to care, and it results in the general overall well-being, which again is an improvement of well-being is one of those ultimate, uh, you know, high-level outcomes that we'd all like to get with our patients. And the last part is the economic uh, outcomes, and this is an area that's growing in preference uh, uh, precedence. I think people are becoming more conscious about the cost of care, uh, what the long-term impacts of things are. Um, and it, it, it's something we're gonna really have to be uh, cognizant of. It's like, do we know what it costs to treat a patient? I, I would love to know from the time a breast cancer patient walks into the door to the time that she walks out five, 10, 15 years later, or we're not successful with therapy. What's that total cost of care? What is that average cost? What is the cost for someone who lives five years, 10 years, 20 years? Those are things we don't know at this point in time. And it's kind of hard for us to develop guidelines and care paths if we don't always know those total costs of care, particularly when we start talking about things like end of life care. You know, are we using things properly? Can we reduce the cost and still maintain quality? Uh, there's this this concern that if we're only chasing cost, that maybe we're not gonna maximize the outcomes, which I'm not sure that's always the best way to approach it. It's where we have to start looking at clinical uh, trials. What are the outcomes of head-to-head -head studies? So what's making things hard these days because there's no head-to-head -head studies in a lot of the oncology world. Uh, in the old days, we used to see the, the NCI and the uh, uh, cooperative group trials looking at those phase three data in a head-to-head -head study. That's almost stopped these days because the race is to find the new drug, the race is to find the cure. And so we're not going back and looking, are we doing the right thing with the drugs we have? It's a group of people out there that are starting to argue that the value of care, that there is a just price and that this, this idea of setting the price at what the market bear is not appropriate may not even be ethical. And can we determine what that just price is? And is there a way that we can say, this is what we're going to pay and then kind of force it from a market perspective to say, we're not gonna pay more than that. So you can't charge us more than that. Uh, if not, is there a role for somebody to step in and say, this is the price you can charge. And that's what's happening in other parts of the world now. Or the government steps in and the national health service and says, this is the maximum uh, price you can charge. The Inflation Reduction Act now has uh, language where Medicare can start setting a maximum price in their price negotiations. So it's gonna be interesting to see how this plays out over time. In oncology, we now have a term called financial toxicity. This is a relatively new term. 
but it's the economic impact of oncology treatments. Um, sometimes this impact is actually predictable. We know this is going to cause problems. What we're really beginning to find out is that in, in up to 85% of our cancer patients, they're, they're suffering financial distress. And 79% of people say they have moderate or catastrophic financial burdens, meaning they are tapping into their long-term savings and uh, re, uh, eliminating it in some cases, some cases even having to sell houses just to pay for their care. 20% of patients we know ration their meds uh, and, and up to a quarter may never fill their prescription uh, due to the cost. Um, we do know that a cancer diagnosis uh, causes you to be more likely to uh, file for bankruptcy. And those that file for bankruptcy have a greater mortality and it adversely affects quality of life. There are studies to support this. So financial toxicity is part of that economic component now that we really need to be focused on and really thinking about. So if we put all of this together and we're generating the outcomes and the quality information we want, what can we do with it? Well, hopefully we make better decisions uh, or we can develop uh, comparative effectiveness. And now we can start looking at guidelines and pathways and really understand the economics. This is where value-based models really begin to come into play. We understand the value of the care so we can price it around that value and hold people accountable for meeting that value. And then ultimately, do we reach that goal of wellness? So from a treatment decision, can we use this outcomes data to say that the treatment extends life? It's frustrating in oncology a lot of times because we are spending a lot of money and the amount of life and benefit we're actually getting is very low. Uh, the accelerated approval process has really caused problems in understanding what the overall outcomes are going to look like. Most drugs these days are approved on overall response rate, and overall response rate then is expected to uh, translate into overall survival. So they get a rapid approval, an accelerated approval with the response rate, do the follow-up studies to get either progression-free survival or overall survival. And we're starting to see a significant number of, of study drugs now having their indications withdrawn because that accelerated approval, that overall response rate doesn't translate into the overall survival that we anticipated it to do. So we're spending a lot of money up front hoping that this would, would result in uh, the outcome that we're looking for. Uh, and so that be is becoming uh, something that people are really, really aware of, particularly in oncology at this point in time. Comparative effectiveness, I've talked about a couple of times, and I think we need to talk about it a little bit. And the goal of comparative effectiveness is to help us make better decisions by providing us the evidence that we need to compare effectiveness, the benefits, the harms of the different treatments we're looking at. And it becomes very, very powerful when you add that economic component to it. Uh, and so if we're looking at comparative effectiveness, the goal here is to clarify what we know, help us spend money better, uh, and generate that information we need to give to patients to help them make better decisions in choosing which therapy is the way to go for them. Uh, I, I, I keep reminding people, uh, there is an economic model out there where you choose the less effective care 
because it is so much cheaper. Uh, it's not something we do a whole lot, but when you start talking to patients and you ask them, are you willing to bankrupt your family for three months or would you rather spend the less money for one or two months? It'd be interesting to find out how many would choose the less money. That study's never been done. And that's one of those things that I think we need to start looking at to see what is the goals of the patient in that patient-centered uh, discussion. Then we begin to develop therapeutic guidelines. And, and in most cases, our therapeutic guidelines right now are focused on high cost, high volume drugs. We do have national guidelines and national health system guidelines. That's been very beneficial whenever we have them. The problem with a lot of the guidelines, and, and again, I'll fall back on my world in oncology, the NCCN guidelines, which most people use, list every uh, combination or every drug that has an FDA approval or substantial literature to support it. Or in some cases, it's a consensus where the members of the panel believe that this system will work. Uh, that's not always the best uh, method to show uh, which one you need to use first. And so that takes us into the next step where we start talking about clinical pathways, where we take the, the national guidelines and translate them into a local protocol that guides practice, where we say, this is the one we do first, then we do this, then we do that. Uh, and it's, it's distinct from the guidelines because it puts structure around the process. And, and it identifies that sequence that we as healthcare providers in our local practice, in our local environment believe is the best way to go. And if we're focused on outcomes and really improve the outcomes, have the comparative effectiveness, we can build clinical pathways that then guide us in the stepwise process. One of the concerns out there right now is that payers are developing their own clinical pathways or they're purchasing third-party pathways, modifying them, and then forcing them on providers to say, this is the way that you will practice. And if you fall outside the clinical pathway, then uh, you don't get reimbursed for your services. The concern here is that the payer may be focused on uh, the economic side and not always focused on the outcome side. So this is where we as clinicians have to get into this process and say, yes, we're gonna make these steps we're gonna make these guidelines and pathways because if we don't, someone's gonna force them on us. And then lastly, we've heard, all heard about value-based models, but this is where we, I think the, the most experts believe that we should be heading as a healthcare system. Uh, but to do that, we really need to know what it costs to treat people. Um, I firmly believe in my career, somebody's gonna walk into our uh, insurance contracting people and say, we'll pay you $5 per month per member to take care of our cancer patients, but you never bill us for services. And if somebody came in and did that, I don't know if we would know right now whether that's a good deal or not. You know, it would depend upon what's the size of the population, what's the incidence of cancer, what's the cost of treating the cancers that are most common in that area. And I'm not sure any healthcare in the country right now has that information to be able to put that kind of system together to say that's where we need to be. If we could do that, imagine the power we'd have as a healthcare system to say, this is what it costs us 
this is what we need to charge. This is a reasonable return on investment. And we could be leading the way in these value-based models. Uh, you know, there's also some talk about, do we take these value-based models all the way to the manufacturers? And, the, and this would be very beneficial if you think about it from those accelerated approval processes. They say, hey, uh, this is giving you an overall response rate. We anticipate it to approve overall survival. And then when it does it doesn't, do we get some rebate back? Um, the problem with those type of systems is then where does the money go? Does it stay in the health system? Does it go back to the patient? Does it go to the payer who paid for it? And those are the kind of, I think, logistical things that are still causing problems that ultimately we're going to have to work with. And then how do you integrate the new drugs, the new technologies? When you have a gene therapy that's been released and that gene therapy is for a very rare disease and uh, the, only, uh, the company tells you the only way they can make money back is to charge $3.5 million a dose uh, because it's a one-time treatment. It's supposed to cure therapy. That's gonna be hard to figure out a way to build a value-based model. It's almost gonna have to be some sort of rebate system. And again, how does it get back? Does it go back to the patient, their family? You know, all of these kind of things. But then I think the last component of this, particularly with the serious diseases, is how do you stop therapy? What is the end of life goal? And how do we tell patients, I'm sorry, we have nothing left to offer you? Uh, it, the data suggests we spend half of all healthcare expenditures for a patient in the last year of their life. Their entire life healthcare expenditures, half of it is in the last year of life. And that's something that we're gonna really have to talk about. And it is a very uncomfortable topic. Nobody wants to deal with it because nobody wants to walk into that patient and say, I have nothing left to offer. And I will tell you, every oncologist I talk to talks, will tell me about their patient that's got eighth or ninth or 10th line therapy that responded. But again, I remind them that's an N of one, that's not the, the norm, but nobody's willing to walk away from that, that chance that someone might be that, that next patient that does that response. So it's gonna be a very, I don't have a solution to it, I'll be honest with you but it's gonna be one of those tough decisions we're gonna to have to talk about at some point in time. And then ultimately our goal is wellness. It's to uh, improve the overall wellness of the, of the population by improving the overall health. And I think here is where pharmacists can be wide, uh, really important. We are wild, uh, widely recognized as people that are important in care coordination, important in uh, chronic disease management, uh, that, you know, if you're taking the drugs appropriately and you're, you're staying well, you know, that's our job is to, to make sure patients are getting the best therapy at the right time. We're managing the processes that are occurring, the side effects, whatever. Um, and our ultimate goal then would be able to show that if we're doing this well, can we show cost savings? And a lot of the studies are starting to do that. So thinking back to our, our discussion again, which of the following is not a definition of value? Is it quality, outcome, safety, cost, or revenue? Let you think about it for a second. The answer is actually revenue. And if you think back to our equation, the equation is quality over cost and quality has outcome, safety, and service built into uh, as the equation. So revenue is not the one we're looking at. The idea here is that revenue will take care of itself if we're maximizing quality.
Well, I'm going to throw something out here that's a little different and say, do we perhaps need to change our definition of value? Uh, when we look at value, we're traditionally looking at these areas in the gray, uh, the life years gained, the quality of life, productivity, cost savings. But are there some other areas that we might need to know? Think about the pharmacogenomics world, uh, the value of knowing. Uh, I keep reminding our residents that the most expensive drug in the world is the one that doesn't work. So if we know this drug is going to work better because we've paid for a test, isn't that valuable? Isn't that something we should be looking for? Uh, I talked a few minutes ago about the end of life. Is there value in hope? Uh, you know, we, we all talk about what it, will somebody be willing to pay for to extend life for two, three, four months. But if extending that allows you to see a grandchild born or a child graduate, that's a different value than someone who may not have that kind of big life event. Um, there's also this concept of real world options. Uh, can we keep you alive long enough with the therapy we have now that the cure will come out in time to save you? Uh, and then is there value for scientific spillover? Uh, do we learn by treating patients that that work, this didn't, that work, this didn't, and it's worthwhile to do that? Is that a valuable process? I would argue that that's probably best done in a clinical trial, uh, but there's some argument that even in a real world setting that that might be the best uh, one way to learn from a scientific perspective. So if you put these together, maybe there's some value there. So one of the things we need to do is think about how quality is changing healthcare and our healthcare decision-making. And that the clinical consequences, the quality of care and the economic impact of drugs are really going to be the focus as we move forward. You know, thinking about, does the drug work? What's its quality of life impact? What's the overall cost? Do we have comparative effectiveness analysis? And are we doing what the evidence supports? Uh, and those are big questions that I think if we're beginning to maximize those and they're all, yes, we're doing the right thing, then our quality focus begins to improve. And we begin to shift from those older measures and in, sometimes I would argue that still some of the current measures that are drug-centered and we focus to patient-focused measures where we are maximizing the quality by maximizing the outcome and if doing this, then the evidence-based care that we really want becomes the standard because that's how we maximize outcomes the best. And we see a, we're seeing a, sh a paradigm shift. You know, safety and efficacy are still important, but not their only value, uh, a measure of the value of drugs. We're starting to look at what is the impact on quality of life? What is the clinical impact that may be beyond just uh, overall survival or uh, you know, the, the hard outcome you're looking for, and then ultimately what's the economic impact. And by putting this all together in quality and outcomes type research, we can move to a point where value becomes the standard and we can legitimately stand up to society and say, pharmacists are maximized value because we are maximizing the outcome and we are doing our best to control the cost of care within the abilities that we have within our current system. So again, if we do this right, it leads to improved care. It's patient-focused care with a quality focus. Uh, we're going from a cost containment mentality to more of a, an accountability and outcomes mentality 
with cost effectiveness being the standard and transparency is something we would be proud of. We can show the cost, we can show the outcomes and demonstrate that our true value uh, in healthcare and demonstrate the value to those people we need to demonstrate it to, patients, uh, society, uh, and other payers of our healthcare system. I'll leave you with a quote from Steve Jobs, uh, that customers measure, don't measure you on how hard you try, they measure you on what you deliver. And I, I would hope that through this presentation, you start thinking of quality and outcomes as a way of measuring value. And you start thinking about how do we integrate that into our day-to-day -day clinical practice. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.